the Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we're offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership in the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership in the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org grads. And join us. We look forward to welcoming you to the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Kirk Hansen. I'm a senior fellow at the Markala Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University, a member of the Commonwealth Club's Silicon Valley Advisory Council. I'm uh, an emeritus faculty member at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and I'm your moderator for today. It's my pleasure to welcome Richard Thaler, the Charles R. Walgreen Distinguished Service Professor of Behavioral Science and Economics at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Richard is considered by many to be one of the founding fathers of behavioral economics, and in 2017 was awarded the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences for his contributions to the field. In 2008, Richard and his co-author Cass Sunstein published the groundbreaking book, Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness. Now Richard and Cass have revised and updated their work with Nudge, the final edition, based on new research and their own experiences in and out of government. Just a reminder that if you have a question for Richard, please submit those in the chat. Richard, welcome. Uh, I'm delighted to have the opportunity. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk with you for this Commonwealth Club event. A few months ago, I had the chance to do a program with your co-author, Cass Sunstein, uh, about his new book, Liars, uh, Falsehoods and Free Speech in the Age of Deception. I started to ask him a question or two about Nudge, and he deferred until the publication of this edition, the final edition of Nudge. And so that's why we're here today. I'd like to to be here. Good. Welcome. I'd like to explore three topics in the next few minutes, and then we'll go to questions from uh, those who are watching uh, this broadcast. Um, Generally, we have a generalist, an informed, but generalist audience at the Commonwealth Club. Not very many uh, behavioral economists uh, or uh, choice theorists, uh, which is probably a good thing. Uh, But what I want to do is get a basic understanding of Nudge and the thesis that you put forward. Secondly, some of the applications that you think are most important and most interesting and perhaps most controversial. And then finally, some of the objections that have been raised in the years since you published the first edition of Nudge in 2008. So let me let me start with what is a nudge? Why do we need them? Uh, and what's your favorite nudge? Okay, well, you know, this 
Favorite nudge is kind of like your favorite child. You're not really allowed to answer that. But um, so a nudge is some small feature of the environment that affects your behavior but doesn't require you to do anything. And uh, it, it doesn't offer you any economic incentives to do it. So nudges are things that regular economists, that is non-behavioral economists, think wouldn't matter because um, rational economic agents would ignore them. So what's an example of a nudge? You know, uh, I used to spend a lot of time going to London because when David Cameron was the prime minister, he he took to nudge and created the world's first so-called nudge unit. They're officially the behavioral insight team. And there's a nudge there that I think is very useful. Uh, you know, in in London, they drive on the wrong side of the road. And uh, that means that you're used to cars coming from the left and they rudely approach from the right. And in, in downtown London, there are signs everywhere at Cross Rocks, look right. Those have saved my life on numerous occasions. And it's a nice nudge because... No one says you have to look at it. Strictly up to you, but it definitely helps. Okay, um, you've already made the distinction between a rational actor, which you call an econ. You and Cass call an econ in the book, and contrast it with humans. Um, a human presumably makes suboptimal decisions sometimes or all the time. Uh, and is subject to some of the fallacies that you've identified uh, in the book. Uh, why aren't we all econs? Why why are we n- subject to all of these failings of decision-making and choice? Well, you know, uh, in some ways, that's like asking why we don't run as fast as a cheetah and, or fly like a falcon. Uh we we are what we are, and uh, human beings are uh, remarkable in in many ways, and, but uh, we're limited. We we can't run as fast as a cheetah, and we can't think as fast as a supercomputer, and we have some failings. Uh, some of us eat a bit too much. Uh, maybe we don't save enough for retirement. Maybe we procrastinate. Um, so these are all just features of of being human beings. And uh, those aren't very surprising to anyone unless you're an economist. And e- economists, in if, if you've taken an economics course, any time in your lifetime, you'll know that e- economists study creatures that they call homo economicus. And those creatures 
can look at a dozen variable rate mortgages, all with different terms, and immediately pick out which is the best one. Uh, these uh, creatures never have hangovers because if they drink at all, it would be in extreme moderation. Uh, and they save just the amount, right amount for retirement. They're never emotional um, or they're optimally emotional. So, you know, ever since I was in graduate school, I kept looking around to meet one of these econs and uh, I never did meet one. And we like to joke that we, we don't study homo economicus, we study Homer economicus because the people we're interested in are more like Homer Simpson than, uh, than they are like homo economicus. How did your predecessors in the economics field handle the cognitive dissonance of the, the, the inconsistencies that seem to be there between their notion of uh, what a homo, homo econ, econom, yes, uh, an econ. Yeah. Uh, um, well, there were lots of excuses made for studying econs. And one reason why economists have that simplification is economists' own bounded rationality, to, to use the phrase that Herbert Simon coined. It, you know, if you're going to study, if, if you're going to model people by saying that they optimize, that it's easiest if they do that perfectly. Because you can write down a formula you know, it's like saying, what's the circumference of a circle? What are you going to guess people will guess? Well, if you know the right answer, that's easy. If you have to try and predict what their errors are going to be, that's hard. So economists took the easy way out when economics started to become very mathematical. The agents they studied started to become very rational. And it didn't used to be that way. If you go back to Adam Smith, he was a behavioral economist. And economists were behavioral kind of up to World War II. And one of the excuses, the most famous one, was coined by Milton Friedman, who was a colleague of yours at Stanford for many years after he retired from Chicago. And he had what he called the as-if defense, which was... It doesn't matter if people really know how to optimize as long as they behave as if they are. And uh, that worked for quite a while until my friends Kahneman and Tversky came along, the famous Israeli psychologists, who pointed out that the mistakes people make are predictable. And once that's true, then people aren't as if optimizing and we need to worry about, well, at least think about, I don't worry much, uh, think about how humans behave and how we should change the way we do economics to accommodate that. Are there any uh, traditional economists who think in rational actor terms left? Is everyone, uh, one of your colleagues, uh, co-authors uh, co from an earlier time, Hirsch Sheffrin, who's at Santa Clara, has said all economics is now behavioral economics. Is that true? Well, uh, you know, one of my golf buddies is Eugene Fama, 
the founder of the efficient market hypothesis. And he still believes in rational choice, although I asked him recently which was more embarrassing to him, Bitcoin or GameStop? And uh, he immediately said Bitcoin because it shouldn't exist at all. And GameStop is merely priced at 10 times too much. So, uh, yes, there are some defenders of traditional models, and many of them are my colleagues at the University of Chicago. And so I know all of their lines. Well, much of your work and this book, Nudge, which presents to the general public uh, many of your concepts, is focused around those predictable ways of uh, that humans will uh, misbehave, if you like, or suboptimize. Um, and so you argue for nudges, and you argue for something that you call choice architecture. Let's let's get that on the table. What what is choice architecture? So choice architecture is a term we made up, but we it's like we didn't invent nudging. We gave it a name. We didn't invent choice architecture. It existed. And uh, choice architecture is just the environment in which you choose. So if you go to a supermarket, the supermarket has been organized in a certain way. There are people who are professionally design supermarkets to nudge you on a path through it that is designed both to make it easy for you to shop and maybe not so coincidentally, make sure you walk by the aisles with the most profitable merchandise. So that's a kind of choice architecture. Uh, if you go to Amazon, they manage to sell every book ever, ever printed and some that are out of print, but you don't get lost. That's good choice architecture. So choice architecture matters, and uh, good choice architecture helps us make better decisions. So choice architecture is structured in a way that helps human, fallible human beings negotiate the world. Well, good choice architecture is. Uh, I, I'm sure we're going to get to sludge. Uh, so, you know, for years I've been signing copies of Nudge, Nudge for Good, which is meant as a plea. But uh, there is certainly choice architecture that is not meant to help you. It's meant to make a profit. And uh, we're aware of that. We... Uh, Bernie Madoff didn't need to read our book to figure out how to commit fraud. So uh, came naturally to him. It, it, yeah. Uh, so there, there, there's, there are there's choice architecture. Some of it helps us, and some of us is reaching for our pocket. So, so let me get at if you like the ethical grounding beneath your approach to nudges. And you've called it libertarian paternalism, which as some others have said is like jumbo shrimp. 
uh, self-contradictory term. It's libertarian, but it's paternalistic. Can you explain that term to us and how you and Cass balance those two what seem like opposite poles? Sure. So, you know, paternalism, we normally think of as involving coercion. But by paternalism, we just mean trying to help people. So if we're designing a policy, say a retirement, suppose I work in the human resources department at some company, and I want to array, have an offer a set of benefits, uh, I'd like them to be the best possible ones for my employees. And, and I'd like to design uh, a website or wherever people choose in a way that helps them take the best ones. So that's what we mean by paternalism, caring about people's outcomes as defined by them. So Cass and I don't think people should do what we think is smart. We, th we think of paternalism as helping in the way that GPS helps you. So both, of, both Cass and I have a terrible sense of direction, but we've gotten lost less often now that we have GPS on our phones. And so, uh, but GPS doesn't tell you where to go. You, you plug in the destination and it suggests a route, which gets us to the libertarian part. The philosophy is let's try to help people without telling them what to do. So the nice thing about GPS is you pick the route and if you change your mind, it doesn't complain. Right. Recalculating uh, your roots. Yeah. It doesn't, and they don't, it doesn't even say that anymore. It just does it. Right. It's not a backseat driver. Why didn't you turn left there? So, uh, so we would, you know, our ideal world is one in which everything is as easy as walking across town with your GPS device activated. And it wouldn't stop you from, oh, what's that interesting building over there? Maybe I'll go have a look at that. It lets you pick, but it helps if you get lost. And we'd like all of life to be like that. Well, let me give you the obvious challenge, which is that uh, paternalism, even though you say it's for people's good and that that's the goal of all of it, that may be easy to calculate in terms of their wealth or uh, uh, a few quantifiable things like that. But in other ways, people differ and their choices are different. And yet the examples you have in the book suggest that nudges are created in systems and that they encourage maybe by the default choice or by other techniques, um, uh, a bias towards a particular solution. Isn't that directive paternalism rather than uh, letting a person totally define their own? So, you know, we, we have, have a philosophy, which is, uh, I mean, the reason we wrote the book was to say, how much good can we produce merely with nudges, merely with choice architecture, merely with libertarian paternalism? As I'm sure we'll get into, we don't think we can solve every problem that way. Nor do we think that every bit of choice architecture is designed to help you. 
and in fact, many aren't. But it, it's, it is the case that even in the private sector, there are incentives to have good choice architecture. Because, you know, if you go to Netflix and you can't find a movie that you want or a show that you want to watch, you'll stop subscribing. The, the, all these online services are in the business of having good choice architecture. Um, how, how do you deal, however, with uh, the question of what you called sludge? And let me, let me introduce that concept at this point and have you comment on it. Now, you, you presented it both as a negative Sludge gets in the way of your making the choices that you want. Too many forms to fill out. Too hard to find how to cancel my subscription to uh, whatever streaming service I signed up for, hoping it was just one month. Um, uh, But at other times you say sludge is a good thing because it creates barriers to somebody immediately choosing a suboptimal course of action. So help us understand sludge and whether it's a good or a bad thing. Yeah, so I prefer to use sludge just as a pejorative, um, though it is the case, of course, that uh, encouragement to slow down can sometimes be helpful. So cooling off periods may be helpful. Um, you know, it, in some places... You have to wait 24 hours if you want to get married. That's probably not the worst idea in the world. And uh, But by sludge, we really mean unnecessary friction and unhelpful friction. And certainly our government is full of sludge. The entire tax system is full of sludge. In Sweden... You file your tax return by text message. You get a text message saying, we think that we owe you 11,000 kroners. If you agree, press one and the money will appear in your account. Wouldn't that be nice? Now, we could have that tax system in the United States for 90% of our taxpayers. Anyone who takes a standard deduction, the IRS knows how much you owe. They could send you a tax return already filled out. But they are forbidden from doing so by an act of Congress. And if you think a little bit about it, you can probably guess what industry was in it got that law passed. So that's that's kind of sludge that we would like to get rid of. You you mentioned another, which is, you know, many subscriptions, you can join very easily and getting out is difficult. It's a little like Hotel California. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never unsubscribe. The There was actually an article in the London Times today about the book, a very nice article. I had pointed out to the author that 
their newspaper has one of the most evil paywalls in the business and how difficult it is to unsubscribe. And I dared him to include that in the article, and surprisingly, he did. And I I would invite all of you to Google that and read it, but I warn you, don't take the trial subscription because uh, in order to unsubscribe, you will have to call London during London business hours, not on a toll-free line. That is sludge. Many gyms have this as a business model, that you have to go and you probably have to run 10 miles on a treadmill in order to quit. So uh, we disapprove of that. All right. Uh, Let me get one other basic in mind, and then I'd like to turn to nudge units uh, as they've been practiced in government and elsewhere. You, In the book, you give a number of criteria for when a nudge is needed, and I'll just uh, read some of them, uh, when it's likely to help and not harm, when a decision requires scarce attention, that somebody's very busy and and it's hard to uh, focus on it, uh, when there's no prompt feedback, um, when uh, uh, a decision is hard to understand, um, when a decision or situation is unfamiliar, uh, perhaps where others have strong incentives to try to profit from your frailty, uh, and so on. Um, uh, how is somebody to operationalize those? Is choice architecture something that is with us no matter whether we want it to be or not? Is it present in every commercial setting and every internet app and uh, website? Um, uh, or is it something special? Choice architecture is everywhere. Uh, If you go to a restaurant, somebody has decided what food will be offered. Someone else creates a menu. There are choices there. Should appetizers be in a different category from salads and soups? Uh, Is pasta a separate category as it must be if it's an Italian restaurant? Um, I think that's a rule, uh, not a nudge. And then what order should the things appear within each category? So all of that stuff matters. And you could take the same set of foods and reorganize them and get people to pick something different. So it's always there and it can be helpful or harmful and uh, that's why, you, you know, choice architecture existed uh, before we gave it a name, but it's helpful to know about it and, sort, and, and become aware, wait a minute, am I just picking that one because it's labeled as house specialty? And are nudges similarly inevitable? In other words... If you give the example early in the book of the cafeteria line, if I'm in a school cafeteria line and I put the fruit first and the sweets last, is it inevitable that there are going to be nudges either towards the sweets or towards the fruit? Yes, it's inevitable because you have to have some choice architecture. So there is a cafeteria 
in the Booth School of Business. Uh, and when you walk in, the first thing you see is the salad bar. You have to go around. It's a big salad bar. You have to go around it to get to the burgers. Now, you could imagine doing it the other way. And maybe they would sell more burgers and less salad. But you have to do it somehow. And you can't... Some people are under the misconception that we can have neutral choice architecture. That doesn't exist. You can't take the food in the cafeteria and arrange it at random. That, that would be pretty inconvenient if all the components of the salad bar were scattered around the entire room and you, oh, the tomatoes are there and the oil is here and the vinegar is back there. That, that, that wouldn't be good. Before Nudge appeared and you put Nudge's and um, Choice Architecture in our minds, um, did people do it completely randomly or were there some people who were really good at this Choice architecture for good, maybe, or maybe for their own marketing well, purposes. Well, you no, know, I don't think people would ever do it randomly, but they might do it not as consciously as, uh, as they might. Uh, you know, I, I like pointing out that choice architecture is like real architecture. And uh, you, you have a, if you say, build me a house, it has to be a real house. It has to have doors and bathrooms and a kitchen. And where you put those things will greatly influence how you live. And it, again, to talk about the building where I'm sitting, the faculty floors are on three levels and they're connected by open stairwells. That's an architectural feature that influences how we interact with each other because you're much more likely to go up an open staircase than go into a stairwell. And if you have to get into an elevator to go to another floor, it's like another country. So uh, even the fact that you can sometimes overhear colleagues on a different floor may remind you, oh, yeah, I, I, I wanted to talk to Joe and ask him that question. And so we interact more because it's been made easier. And as you know, that's my mantra. If you want people to do something, make it easy. Let's, let's talk about nudge units and why they're an outcome of your publication of this book. Now, you, you say that you know, dozens of governmental entities and even some private ones have created groups of people who are charged with this behavioral analysis and creating incentives or nudges. Uh, uh, why did that occur? And what's the record of those nudge units been? Well, uh, there, somebody at the OECD has counted, and they now claim there are 400 of these around the world. The first one was in the UK and it was created because uh, a young guy who was working in David Cameron's campaign read the book, bought a bunch of copies 
and piled them up in their office. And David Cameron was nudged to pick one up and read it and said, oh, if we get elected, we're going to do this. And so they created something that they called the Behavioral Insights Team. Everyone called it the Nudge Unit, but its official name is the Behavioral Insight Team. And uh, a couple of years later, Barack Obama uh, did something similar. And as I say, now there are now hundreds. I worked pretty closely with the UK one when they were getting started. And what they do is uh, some agency will come and say, we're having a problem with such and such. Could you help us? So one example, one of the first ones I was involved in, there was a guy in the Treasury who was in charge of collecting money from people who owed money on their taxes. And he said, you know, some of these people take months to pay. Uh, is there something we could do to speed it up? So we said, okay, well, what do you do now? We said, we send a letter. We looked at the letter and we said, well, it might be possible to write a better letter. Now, here's the key thing that all nudge units do. We don't say, all right, here's a better letter, use this. No, let's experiment and test. So there were hundreds of thousands of people who were owing money. Uh, so it was possible to try eight different letters. The winning letter said something like, 90% uh, of all taxpayers pay their taxes on time. You're in the minority of those who don't. Uh, and uh, the money is used to, you know, in your town to do such and such. Well, that speeded up the money that the government got and cost exactly nothing. Sending an effective letter costs exactly the same as an ineffective letter. So the lesson is that People can be influenced, and it can save the government money. And I've seen your uh, uh, fingerprints then in the hotels where uh, it now says, most people allow us to uh, use towels over a couple of days uh, rather than replacing them each day. So I suspect that's another of your, your well, e either me or Bob Cialdini, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> the author of the famous book Influence. Right. So, um, government designers, architects like that, are much more used to thinking in terms of mandates and penalties. Um, do you think you're having that the nudge units are having an impact on? Uh, moving people more towards nudges rather than mandates? No, I don't think so. And the reason is that that's not really their job. And maybe it should be, but, um, you know, a nudge unit is kind of like a think tank inside of government, or though the UK one is now moved outside and is a nonprofit that's owned partly by the government and partly by the employees. But uh, 
they serve as consultants kind of the way a consultant serves to a business. And the consultant doesn't get to make the decisions. The consultant gets to advise if, if you're going to do it, if, if your goal is to do X, then it would be better to do it this way rather than that way. And um, now it, if, if governments are moving toward using more of this, then that has to come from somewhere else, from the legislature or from uh, the executive office. And um, that does happen around the world, but it's not coming from the nudge units. So what about the acceptance within private companies, commercial entities? Has it been similar? Are there nudge units in uh, companies, uh, in professional firms? There's a, a, a big one at a large company in your neighborhood, uh, about halfway down the peninsula. Um, so, yes, there are groups of behavioral scientists working in many organizations um the there are i'd say two domains where it's most common one is in in online uh so choice architecture uh and some of it borders on marketing the other is in human resources and uh I should say that I think the the aspect of business that is most ripe for a revolution is human resources. And it's it's often the neglected part. It's something you have to do and the, the C-suite thinks of it as a nuisance that uh, but you know uh, I, I'm friends with uh, Daryl Morey, who's the general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers and a very analytically oriented guy. And I was uh, doing a conversation with him for a large financial services company. And I pointed out that he has 15 analytical types working for him and his job is to be the human resources director for a company with 12 employees. Now they're tall, very tall employees and very highly paid, but that was 15 more people than this financial services company had doing analytics on who they should hire and how they should evaluate them. And so I, I think the, the, it's odd that the sports world is at the cutting edge in, in using science to make hiring decisions, and the rest of the world is lagging behind. If there are some 400 nudge units around the world in many different kinds of organizations, is that capacity to do choice architecture something that ought to be concentrated, in your view, in uh, specialized units? Or is this a skill every manager should have who's managing people or uh, designing other uh, products and so on? I, I, I think 
No, I, I think absolutely it's the latter. Uh, and in fact, I think I, normally I, I prefer nudges, but I think uh, reading our book, the final edition should be mandated. And in fact, uh, I think Gideon's Bible has had a nice run and, you know, maybe it's time for Gideon's nudge. You know, what do you, what do you think of that idea? But a, a serious answer to your question is uh, nudge units really, I think their expertise should be in running experiments. And thinking about choice architecture in an intelligent way is something that should be throughout the entire organization. Before we get to uh, participants' questions, sludge, uh, a concept you introduced really in this second, uh, in, excuse me, in this final edition. I, yes. Yes. And you, you explain that that's a nudge for yourselves that you will not go back and revisit the book again. Yeah, this was, this was a pandemic exercise. And um, I don't plan to have another eight-month period when I'm locked in my house. So uh, we're not going to do this again. But, yeah, sludge is uh, nudging for evil. And like those, uh, those subscriptions that you can't get out of and the, the sludge. And, you know, here's a, here's a simple example. Um, we have at the university uh, an online way of filing expenses and a corporate credit card that we, so I bought something with, for my office and then didn't like it and returned it. And this system knew that I had bought this and that they had already gotten the money back, but nonetheless, I was required to give them a receipt. This is sludge, right? I mean, Come on. Why do we need that? And so make it easy, which is your mantra, is one of the elements that would help us eliminate as much sludge as possible. Yeah, I think every company should do a massive sludge reduction campaign. And they should think about every form that somebody has to fill out and ask, how can we get rid of this? And um, well, let me, let me focus on the bad uses of your great. It, it's a it's a perhaps a sign of your success that we're now worried about misuses of your insights uh, about human behavior. And oh my gosh, if we just delay, if we make it a little harder for them to cancel their subscription, we can make this much more money. Um, how do we control that tendency to misuse what you've, you didn't create it, but you uh, promoted it? You know, I, I mean, obviously we could, there are some practices that are so nasty that they should be against the law and fraud is against the law. We, um, you know, there, there were some banks that were taking the, purchases you made on a debit card in a day 
and processing them not in chronological order, but from big to small in order to make you go over your limit as soon as possible and then charge you $35 for each, each one. That, that's just nasty. Now, I think that practice has been banned, but um, companies, I think, should be thinking about how they can earn the trust of their customers and their employees by being trustworthy themselves. And I won't, I won't subscribe to that newspaper, no matter how many nice articles they write about me, um, because they won't let me quit. And I, and I now won't subscribe to anything until I look into how I can quit. If everybody starts doing that, then people will advertise as uh, some internet companies do. You can quit anytime online with one click. That that makes me more willing to try something. So among the um, principles you lay down in making it easy and and ethical use of, of nudges is transparency about what's going on. So no hidden nudges. Is that uh, your principle? Uh, absolutely. And pe- people have the misconception that nudges are sneaky. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, I, we mentioned earlier the look right. If that was an invisible ink, it wouldn't be very helpful. So, now, it's true that when the fact that it's going to be hard to unsubscribe, that's not transparent, but that's why we call it sludge. If I automatically enroll you into the retirement plan, because I think, given that there's a company match, almost everybody is going to want to join, I don't make it a secret. I tell you, you're eligible for the plan, and and we're going to enroll you unless you click here and say you don't want to join. That's not a secret. And furthermore, people have run experiments saying this is the default, and we've picked it because we think it's in your best interest. That does not make the default less effective. If anything, it makes it more effective. So – we are totally in favor of transparency. All right. Um, when you wrote the first book, you focused to a great extent on financial decisions uh, of various kinds, what retirement plan you pick and what insurance, and you are unalterably opposed to small deductibles and uh, uh, maintenance, uh, extended maintenance plans. Um, are you, Why'd you start with those quanti- those quantifiable things? Was it because they're traditional economist concerns? Well, and remember, I'm notoriously lazy, and these are topics I had already written about. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think that it's easier. It, it, it's clearly dumb 
to buy an extended warranty on some inexpensive product that never breaks. Buying an extended warranty on a microwave oven is dumb. Somebody told me that they saw an extended warranty offered on a thumb drive. Now, I mean, I lose those before. I've never had one break. So, so you know, I think the fact that financial decisions are easy to evaluate and to say this is smart and this is dumb, uh, that made it attractive. It, uh, other things are, are harder. Uh, let me just hit, uh, in conclusion of my uh, time, and I urge our participants to uh, submit questions so that I can uh, ask them on their behalf. Um, you've had a, some other criticisms, such as nudges are too weak much of the time, but if you talk too much about nudges, people are never going to go to mandates. And then, of course, you have the slippery slope criticism, which is that if you do nudges, mandates are just the next step. The gun control activists and uh, gun control uh, defenders uh, and so on. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think certainly I've never seen a slippery slope argument that I found compelling. And the, the reason is that the people who make those arguments never give any evidence that there's any slope. And I, I like to point to the example of prohibition. So we passed prohibition. You, if, if there's a slippery slope, then you might think that the next thing we're going to do is ban French fries or I, I don't know what. Uh, smoking, um, what happened instead? We repealed it. So society moves in strange ways, and it's certainly not the case that one step needs to lead to another. And, you know, we had a chapter in the previous book about same-sex marriage we had what we thought was a very clever solution to that problem, uh, which was to get the government out of the marriage business. Somehow, in the years since, they did something even easier, which is make it legal. Okay, we took that chapter out. But it's a good example of how quickly societal norms can change in unpredictable ways. People forget that Barack Obama said... Marriage is between a man and a woman. And uh, that's before Joe Biden gaffed him into changing his mind. And so, uh, you know, I think we argue, uh, take each policy on its merits rather than be afraid of, um, of what it will lead to. Now, let me just make one other point, which is uh, a point that we make off and on throughout the book, which is we don't think every problem can be solved with nudging. And one example, we have a chapter on climate change. We, that's too big of a problem to deal with, with nudges. Nudges can help. But every economist, I join every economist in the world in thinking 
we have first step is we have to get the price right. So we should have a carbon tax or cap and trade, they're roughly similar, and start with that. Sweden has paved the way on that, and uh, emissions have gone way down, and GDP has gone up. It, it's not true that having a carbon tax is a recipe for disaster. And uh, I had an op-ed in the New York Times recently saying that when it comes to vaccines, we have to move beyond nudging. Um, and uh, my university and probably yours uh, is requiring students to be vaccinated if they want to come back and faculty. And as a faculty member, I'm pretty happy about that. You anticipated a couple of the questions that have been asked about vaccines. Well, we can talk more masks. about that if you want. You've you've uh, put a number of examples in uh, in your final edition uh, about the current pandemic moment. Um, so you you think mandates around things like vaccines are justified, uh, or just that nudges are not adequate? Well, I think that we we didn't you know we didn't write too much about COVID intentionally because we anticipated that anything we wrote would be out of date by the time the book comes out. And it, it's a moving target. So one thing we've observed through this process, we, it's gone through at least three identifiable stages in the U.S. The first one was a rush to get a vaccine as soon as possible for the people who wanted it. The second stage was getting to the people who were hesitant or procrastinating or it was inconvenient and getting to them. We, we're now in the third stage where there's a group that is highly resistant. And, you know, if they were only affecting their own health, I would say, you know, let them be. But uh, as we know, if you get sick, you can get a lot of other people sick. So the government, there would be a good argument for the government requiring a vaccine. No government that I know of has done that. Though we do require vaccines for all kinds of childhood diseases, and those mandates eliminated things like polio. So, but we've stopped short of that. And if given that, then I think private sector mandates are appropriate. And so, some places like uh, your city um, has passed a law that restaurants will uh, only serve indoors to people who've been vaccinated. I, I think I think that's a sensible policy. If I owned a restaurant, that's what I would do. I also applaud California for bringing out the first digital vaccine record. It's completely preposterous that we have that card uh, on a piece of paper somewhat too big to fit in your wallet that has handwriting on it. My God, 
the the vaccines were created with technology that didn't exist five years ago. And we give people a piece of paper that looks like a 1950s report card. Uh, it, it's it's ridiculous. And the opposition to that is just nonsensical. No one's saying you must have that. But try flying abroad with that piece of paper and you're going to be thankful you live in California and you can get something with a QR code that you can scan. We, we have uh, a question about the internet and to what extent that has affected this world of choice architecture and so on. And I, uh, you've, you've made the point that uh, there are many choices made on the internet and on apps and websites and so on. Uh, is that one of the driving forces making uh, nudges more uh, prominent uh, that the internet is there, and and I just I want you also, if you would, to talk about choice engines, which you mention in your book, which is the idea that there may be some more help coming on the internet for the complexity of decisions that we all face. Yeah. So look, the the internet. If you first of all, successful firms by and large have been good at choice architecture. Think about Apple, Google, Amazon, Netflix. They all make it easy, right? It, nobody's ever gotten lost at Amazon. And uh, Apple, you know, the, they were successful because, you know, Steve Jobs showed you you could operate the phone without reading an instruction manual. So... Uh, that's not to say that all the tech firms are doing everything in their customer's interest, but they are experts at good choice architecture and, and the successful ones particularly so. Now, I think it is possible, you know, I mentioned GPS, that we want to live in a world with GPS. We think there should be GPS for choosing a mortgage. That. that that's a really hard problem. I don't know many economists who think they can reliably pick the best mortgage available. Now, you know, and if I want to get a mortgage, I go down and ask my smartest finance colleague for advice, but not everyone has that option. The, when we talk about a choice engine, we mean something like travel websites. So it used to be in, in our day that to book a flight from San Francisco to Paris, you would call a travel agent. Now you go online and book it yourself in five minutes. And you're pretty sure you get the cheapest fare. You can shop for a hotel the same way. Travel agents are basically out of business. I'd like mortgage brokers to be out of business because I can find the best one. And uh, without, without the help of uh, somebody who usually has uh, an agenda. Mm -hmm. Or a conflict of interest. There are lots of good ethical issues. Being a professor of business ethics, this is a, a, a gold mine of ethical dilemmas. Uh, when to use nudges and when to use 
choice architecture and how to use it and so on. Um, let me ask you about a, a final question uh, been raised about use of nudges on our own in our own personal lives. And you, you use the term snudge. You've got nudge, sludge, and then you had snudge, which is creating a nudge for yourself to motivate your own behavior. Help us understand how that yeah, well, works. Look, we all do that. So I remember early in my career as a professor, when I would be procrastinating about uh, getting a project finished, I would agree to present a paper at a conference six months from now to give myself a deadline because deadlines matter. We all make lists. We have calendars, uh, reminders. We use alarm clocks. Alarm clocks are just nudges to wake up. And so most of us know what our failings are. And we, you know, if you want to go on a diet, you don't buy a gallon of ice cream and put it in the freezer. You buy a pint. So, a pint. A pint is fine, I think, if you're going to share it. <laughs> so uh, what's the future of nudges? Why, uh, If you were to write one more edition 10 years from now, will most organizations have nudge units? Will all of us be aware of the nudges being used on us by choice architecture? Will every business person, every manager be thinking in terms of nudges? What What's your prediction well, for the future? I, I, you know, Yogi Bear famously said, predicting, if forecasting is hard, especially about the future. So, you know, I would never have predicted 13 years ago that we would sell 2 million copies of a book that no publisher wanted. So uh, I'm not that good at forecasting. I, I do think that uh, behavioral science is becoming more a part of uh, business practices and something every company knows they have to have a CFO. Uh, maybe they should have a CBO, chief behavioral officer, uh, and like I said, I think uh, there should be a revolution in human resources, and uh, let's get that uh, modernized as well. Tremendous growth of this concept within the, that sector. And that was yes. one of the questions asked was, where is this going to grow fastest? And I think you've you've given us some good indications of that. In my own field of business ethics, behavioral ethics is the latest thing. And uh, you know a number of the individuals who are pursuing that. And it is, for example, putting on the top of that uh, electronic uh, expense report you submit some kind of reminder, fill this out honestly. And uh, the little experiments have indicated that even that little nudge, which doesn't uh, force you to do anything, uh, has had impact. So thank you for your drawing our attention and the attention of so many uh, managers and institutions to this concept of nudge. Um, 
Our thanks today uh, to Richard Thayer, Thaler, who is the co-author of Nudge, the final edition, with his uh, uh, co-author Cass Sunstein. We encourage you to pick up your copy of Nudge uh, at your local, uh, uh, I was going to say bookstore or internet outlet. We thank you. We thank Richard Thaler, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.